0: Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. Our guest today is Carolyn Toto, the leader of Pillsbury's Internet and Social Media Industry Team. Carolyn advises technology industry leaders on all aspects of IP litigation, strategic prosecution, and portfolio management and she provides strategic counseling to optimize the value of clients' intellectual property. Carolyn is also well-versed in the legal issues involving social media, content distribution, and advertising. Welcome to our podcast, Carolyn.
1: Thanks, Joel. It's great to be here today with you.
0: Our discussion today is part of our mini-series on non-fungible tokens known as NFTs. We will take a look at some specific issues that are somewhat unique to NFTs, and try to give you, our listeners, some interesting things to watch out for as you wade into this relatively new space. Perhaps you can start us off, Carolyn, with a reminder of what an NFT actually is.
1: Of course. An NFT, or a non-fungible token, is generally described as a unit of data stored on a blockchain that represents a digital file. NFTs can represent real world physical items, um, or as you've seen lately, digital items like digital art. Like other cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin or Ether, an NFT is a cryptographic token that can be described as a measure of value that exists only on the blockchain. But the difference here is that unlike these other cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin and Ether, NFTs are not mutually interchangeable. That is, they're not fungible. So one example is, A Bitcoin is indistinguishable from any other Bitcoin. and can be readily exchanged one for another. But by contrast, each NFT is unique. It's a -a one-of-a-kind piece of code that's stored and protected on the blockchain. And so as we've seen in recent months, that NFT has been used to represent digital files, including art, music, videos, trading cards, recipes, and even real estate. And instead of having that physical tangible item, an NFT representing ownership of that digital asset resides uh, in a buyer's digital wallet. So a good analogy to the art world would be that instead of hanging on a wall or sitting on a shelf, an NFT that represents digital art resides in a digital wallet. And currently, there's very few restrictions as to what kind of content can be tokenized and turned into an NFT. So presents a lot of very interesting opportunities.
0: With the large sums of money involved in many NFT transactions, due diligence and proper transaction execution must be critical factors. Yet I've heard about buyers getting tripped up on things that once you hear about them seem obvious. Can you shed some light on this for us?
1: Sure, Joel. Well, as an IP attorney, I'm obviously always on the lookout for IP issues. And as with any other asset, NFTs can certainly involve IP issues that the buyer is not clear on what exactly he or she is buying. And so I, a, a problem to be aware of in terms of NFTs is that the person who mints or or creates the NFT on the blockchain may not necessarily own the underlying digital content or the tangible Intangible item that the digital content is based upon. So, for one example, someone might take a photo and make an NFT of that digital image. But say the photo was actually taken by someone else and the person who minted the NFT didn't have authorization or ownership of that underlying photo, then technically the NFT could be infringing upon the IP rights of the photographer. Um, one of the more current Incidents that kind of highlights this point is a lawsuit that Jay-Z filed against his co-founder, Damon Dash, of Rockefeller Records, Jay-Z's record label. The complaint alleges that Dash partnered with a platform, an NFT platform Superfarm, to auction an NFT of Jay-Z's 1996 debut, debut album, Reasonable Doubt and it quotes a purported superfarm press release calling the sale one of the most significant nft auctions to date because it would transfer the rights to all future revenue generated by the album from demon dash to the auction winner and that's very unusual because for most part nfts uh, generally retain the the ip rights of the of the artists and and the creator will actually retain most of the copyrights but out of the bundle of rights, the NFT purchaser usually just gets some limited license to display the NFT. And so, of course, the lawsuit asserts that Dash didn't actually have the IP rights to convey such broad transfer of IP rights in the NFT. Um, and the complaint allegations say that Dash only owns a minority share in the record label. And so as such, she does not have a right to sell a company asset outright. Um, ultimately, the auction was canceled at Rockefeller's request, um, and the case is still pending. So, it, it, it's a prime example of why, when somebody buys an NFT, they need to make sure they do their due diligence to ensure that the NFT creator actually had the underlying rights uh, to whatever digital asset it is that the NFT is based upon. Um, and like I said earlier, one thing to appreciate, and, and of course this is all developing since NFTs are still relatively new, but like purchase of, of a tangible art, generally it's not a transfer of IP rights. The buyer gets some limited right to display the piece of art, but doesn't necessarily have all the full copyright to, to the art. And so they may lack exclusive access to control that asset, um, as if you had gotten entire ownership rights of, of the underlying asset. And so that's one of the things that I think a lot of purchasers of NFTs caught up in this, you know, this fund development, and haven't actually kind of appreciated the different scopes of the IP issues. They need to make sure that they do their due diligence on the IP rights.
0: I think it's really interesting how. There can be such great advances in technology, and then there's this shift that goes on in the market and in people's minds, but then there are all these old rules and concepts from analog days that, that still apply in the digital world. Um, The second thing I'd like to hear you speak about is the platforms that hold these digital assets. Again, once you're attuned to this, some of the issues seem obvious, but a buyer can be caught off guard due to lack of experience with NFTs. What are the risks to the owner of an NFT, for example, if the platform holding the NFT shuts down or if the platform operator goes into bankruptcy?
1: Sure. I think it would be useful to first get into a little background of blockchain technology before I answer that. So blockchain technology can be generally described as an open distributed ledger that records transactions between two parties in a verifiable and permanent way. And there's different types of blockchains with their own cryptographic tokens. So for example, Bitcoin is the native token of Bitcoin. The platform here and the cryptocurrency have the same name. Um, On the other hand, Ether is the native token of Ethereum. And there are differences among these blockchains. Bitcoin is a single-purpose blockchain that's only used to transfer value. But there are more advanced ones like Ethereum, which are considered multi-purpose blockchains that can transfer value, but they also do other things such as support NFTs. And so today we see a lot of the NFT action happening on Ethereum, and most of the more well-known NFT exchanges are minting NFTs using Ethereum. So turning to the accessibility issue, most NFTs on blockchain are really just based on a URL that directs you to the site that's hosting the underlying digital content that the NFT represents. And these links need to be maintained by someone, just like any website. This is oftentimes a web host or the NFT exchange that minted the NFT. but. Like you know, there may be issues where a host or exchange shuts down or goes under for any reason like bankruptcy. And then if that happens and nobody's maintaining the link, it essentially breaks. And what happens is the NFT ends up pointing to a missing file. And so that's another one of the underappreciated issues um, I think that most buyers may not be aware of. Right now, one of the potential solutions that buyers of nfts and nft exchanges have been looking toward is to create nfts using a decentralized system called ipfs or interplanetary file system and what ipfs does is it's uh, it uses a peer-to-peer protocol so that the content is accessible through peers located anywhere in the world not just one site and in this way an nft that's linked to an ipfs address will let you find a piece of content so long as somewhere, somewhere on that system is hosting the link. And so you have a lot more chances that that link will be maintained for longevity. Um, because a multitude of hosts rather than, you know, a single domain owner is ensuring that the file remains online and accessible. So buyers who are looking to get into NFTs should be again do their due diligence and see at least where they're buying an the nft see what type of hosting um, that nft was made with and so if you're going to buy from certain nft exchanges both sellers and buyers should be aware of the issue and, and take care to use platforms that are using either ipfs or something similar uh, to that type of system
0: that sounds like a great solution and uh, hopefully as that evolves um it'll it'll work the way people think it should. Um, It also strikes me that this might be an area where there could be an insurance product or or something like an insurance product uh, to try to protect against platform risk, uh, like the type that you've discussed.
1: Yes, there are. So insurers and insurer techs provide some digital asset coverage. Um, But most currently, these products usually apply to fungible tokens such as cryptocurrency and not NFTs, per se. Today, I've seen a few insurers that say they specifically cover NFTs, but I think there's a lot more to be wanted. Our colleague, Richard Giller, has actually written a piece about this very issue, uh, and it's posted at Pillsbury's Internet and Social Media team blog, um, available at internetandtechnology.com. Um, It's also more widely available on our firm website. Richard notes there that the insurance industry has been slow to respond to NFT risks, but that's most likely because, like everyone else, it's coming to grips with the unique risks involved with NFTs, including some of the issues we just discussed. And, of course, the insurance industry is familiar and does offer coverages, I'm sure, against many risks that are associated with NFT transactions, like IP protection, insurance against misrepresentation, theft and bankruptcy. And so I think the challenge here is for insurers to take some of the currently offered coverages that would be applicable to NFTs and just add specific insurance protection for those risks unique to NFT transactions to be able to create more NFT specific policies. So it'll be interesting to kind of watch the insurance industry, how it develops and addresses these NFT-associated risks.
0: We will definitely be on the lookout for further developments in the insurance area. It's been great having you on the podcast today, Carolyn. I'd love it if you could rejoin us for a follow-up to explore other NFT-related issues. Thank you, Joel.
1: It's been my pleasure to join you today.
0: And now it's time for This Week in History. 1945, by all measures, was a difficult year, with World War II raging, the death of FDR, and a nuclear arms race in full swing, among other things. But ultimately, good news triumphed with the Allied victory, the fall of Nazi Germany, the liberation of concentration camps, and the passing of the torch of democracy from Franklin Roosevelt to Harry Truman. Given all these blockbuster events, it wouldn't be surprising if you missed the story about Betty Lou Oliver. But in case 1945 didn't already have you believing in miracles, her story just might make you reconsider. On July 28, 1945, the pilot of a B-25 bomber on a routine transport mission from Massachusetts to New York City's LaGuardia Airport became disoriented in thick fog. His plane, flying too low, was about to hit the Chrysler Building when the fog lifted slightly, allowing him to pull up at the last second. But instead of turning to the left in the direction of LaGuardia and safety, the plane veered to the right and crashed into the 79th floor of the Empire State Building. Which brings us to Betty Lou Oliver, a 20-year-old elevator operator who was planning on quitting her job that week. Her elevator's doors had just opened onto the building's 80th floor lobby when the force of the plane's impact blew her right out and onto the lobby floor. A couple of people put her on another elevator in an attempt to get her out of the building to seek medical attention. But the crash had also weakened the cables of this second elevator. The cable snapped and the elevator, with Betty Lou in it, plummeted 75 stories, almost 1,000 feet, and crashed to the floor of the building's sub-basement. Betty Lou suffered a broken pelvis, a broken neck, and a broken back that day. But after a long and arduous eight months, she somehow fully recovered and went on to lead a normal life until passing away in 1999 at the age of 74. She's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the survivor of the longest elevator fall. So with a seemingly endless stream of bad news confronting us in 2021, from the rise of the Delta variant, to extreme weather, to threats to democracy and voting rights, try to remember 1945, because eventually good news triumphs over bad, and small miracles will always be there to surprise us, as they did for Betty Lou Oliver. You can catch all of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Music, as well as on our website, PillsburyLaw.com. Until next time, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.